The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's word, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to concentrate under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And so, just in case anybody needs to use 1 John 1, nine, we always... Begin with a few moments of silent prayer to confess our sins to God the Father under the privacy of our priesthood. Make sure we're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, and ready to take in the Word. So let's pray with a few moments of silent prayer first. Father, it is a privilege that we have to come together as a body of believers to fellowship around the teaching of your word. Father, it is through your word that you have decreed that the believer is brought to spiritual maturity under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. It is, in, it is thy word that is the means of sanctification, and it is in the means of, under the means of your word and in light of your revelation that we are, to, that we are enabled to understand the things that go on around us, that we are able to properly interpret our own culture, and that we are to be able to objectively evaluate our own thinking. Now, Father, as we continue our study of your word this morning, we pray that you would help us to be objective, to be honest, and to have the courage to apply the things that we learn, that we might be able to advance towards spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Judges chapter 9. Judges chapter 9, and we continue our study of Abimelech. We continue our study about Abimelech, tyranny, the consequences of tyranny, but above all what we're seeing in our study is the impact of human viewpoint thinking, or what I'm also calling pagan thought. Pagan thought is a technical term for any thinking that is not biblical. Paganism refers to any type of thinking that is not 
based on a Judeo-Christian heritage. It's a technical term in the dictionary. It's not a pejorative term. It's not an insult. It simply is a technical description of non-biblical thought. And whenever a culture assimilates non-biblical thought into their overall orientation to life, then the more paganism they have, the more the culture fragments, the more it uh, is disrupted, the more we see there's an increase in tyranny because it's only on the basis of divine viewpoint, only on the basis of a proper orientation to Scripture that we can properly exercise authority. Authority, as we have seen, is part of the divine makeup. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are equal in their essence. They each share in all of the attributes. There is none that has those attributes to a greater degree or to a lesser degree. So they are equal in their being. But they are distinct in their roles. God the Father is the author of the plan. God the Son is the one who carries it out. And God the Holy Spirit is the one who reveals it to mankind. They have distinct roles and there is an authority structure within the Trinity. Jesus said, I can do nothing unless the Father gives it to me. And Jesus also said, after I leave, I will send the Holy Spirit to you as another comforter. The point being that the Holy Spirit is... Uh, the Holy Spirit proceeds according to the technical terminology handed down through these centuries on the basis of a study of past theologians. The Holy Spirit proceeds from Father and Son. The Son is under the authority of the Father. So there's always an authority relationship. Authority isn't something God invented and imposed on man after the fall in order to bring order to a chaotic universe. Authority was always there. And the only way authority is, does not deteriorate into tyranny is when, it is a, when, on the basis of doctrinal orientation, we're able to hold things in balance. But once you get away from God as the ultimate authority in the universe, and authority orientation breaks down, then as we have seen, the sin nature is in control of the individual. Sin nature-controlled individuals are then dominating the institutions the divine institutions that God has established, and those, div- those divine institutions are going to break down. The individual, when he does not have authority orientation, is going to be under the domination of the sin nature. Sin nature is always going to trend towards either licentiousness or, or legalism. Licentiousness is the absence of any kind of control, absolute, or authority. Legalism is an abusive authority. And so what happens when the aggregate of individuals are trending towards either licentiousness, which would be anarchy in a society. It produces anarchy in a society. Or if they tend towards some sort of self-righteous legalism, and you don't have to be a believer to be self-righteous or legalistic. In fact, we're seeing it a lot in our culture. There has been a real shift towards self-righteous legalism. And it is producing a lot of really strange laws in the land. It's producing a reaction. The most, one of the most obvious, there are many, one of the most obvious is the um, whole anti-smoking campaign and how that runs. Now, smoking is not healthy. It's not something that is, produces good health. But what we see is this reaction where it becomes a major uh, lens through which all everything is is uh, evaluated, and the big deal is everybody needs to stop, and so it's it's blown out of proportion. Well, that's typical in American history. American history has always been on these social reform campaigns produ- produced by self righteousness. It started with the abolition movement, temperance movement, 
and it's gone down through history. And there's always some social sin that is blown up, blown out of proportion. And when a society is just overwhelmed with safety issues as we are, then whether it has to do with uh, safety car seats for infants in cars or whether it has to do with smoking or whatever it might be or cell phones, whatever it might be, then all of a sudden that becomes the, the, uh, that, an issue that's blown out of proportion and everybody gets on the self-righteous bandwagon. And if you practice that or participate in that, then you're the greatest evil in society. So there's always these trends, one towards self-righteousness, which produces a, a type of tyranny from the tyranny of the sin nature, to the other extreme towards licentiousness, which produces anarchy. The more anarchy enters into a divine institution, the more there is a reaction towards control because people can't function in an unstable uh, situation where there is no order, no control, and everybody's just doing whatever they want to do. And that's the exact situation we had in Israel. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And so the people tried to solve the problem through an illegitimate monarchy, and they uh, appointed Abimelech as king. Now, we went through the divine institutions. Five divine institutions begins with uh, the individual responsibility. This was established at the garden by the command, Thou shalt not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Put individual responsibility on each person. We're responsible for our own decisions. Second divine institution was marriage. And we saw that when, when marriage breaks down into the two, two uh, people, the husband and wife going to separate ways, doing whatever they want to, then the marriage is either going to fragment and collapse or there's usually some sort of frustration element in the marriage because there's no order. And so one or the other becomes abusive and controlling. That works its way out in the family. You see the same thing. Parents don't want to discipline their kids, let them do whatever they want to, uh, learn by experience, and then before long the kids are just running wild and there's no discipline, no order. They're a problem at school. They're a problem in the classroom. And so then there's a reaction. The reaction is uh, usually excessive force, uh, abuse, things like that. So paganism produces that. Fourth divine institution is in the in a nation, and we're seeing it here. Uh, nation, uh, national government was established with the Noahic covenant in Genesis chapter nine, and so there's an extreme to, from anarchy on the one ex, one hand to totalitarianism on the other hand, and paganism always produced some sort of totalitarianism, especially if we look at the post. Flood period, the uh, post-Diluvian period from Genesis chapter 9 up through the founding of, of Israel as a nation at Mount Sinai. All of the major empires in the world at that time, Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, Hittite Empire, were all strong national governments. The individual did not matter. The only thing that mattered was the state. And then God established Israel, gave them the Mosaic law, and they had real freedom. But they re when they rejected God, they were rejecting the basis for that freedom, and they began to deteriorate internally. The only time you have a society that comes along that puts an emphasis on the rights of the individual is in Greece and with the Athenian democracy. The interesting thing is that doesn't come on the scene until after Israel has been on the scene, and there is evidence that there was a lot of commerce between the Middle East, between Israel and the Greek city-states. And although I would, it would be a wonderful topic for a doctoral dissertation, 
I am of the opinion, I don't know that it's provable, but I'm of the opinion because of different things that I have read and seen that as a result of this commerce between the Greek city-states and Israel that, that democracy just didn't spring up out of nowhere in Greece. It came as a result of influence from Israel, and that was part of their responsibility under the Mosaic Covenant to be a blessing to Gentile nations. And that's why God gave them that freedom. One of, or one of the reasons God gave them that freedom is that they would be a testimony to liberty and freedom in the ancient world. And so I think that the rise of democracy... But see, even the democracy in Greece was... was democracy means mob rule. Demos, meaning mob or crowd. Crassi, crassus, meaning rule. That what you had there was it always tended towards towards anarchy because you didn't have a representative government in Greece like we have in the United States. Every citizen had to vote on every single decision. Now, if you only have 100 or 150 people, that might be workable. But as the culture grows, that becomes unwieldy and unworkable. It breaks down into anarchy, and then what do you have to have? You have to have some sort of tyrannical government, which is what eventually happened in Greece, and that was exemplified in the power of Alexander the Great. So when you get away from doctrine, the point is that when you get away from doctrine, there is a loss of freedom, a loss of responsibility, and a loss of respect for the individual. And the consequence of that is that there's going to be a rise of abuse, a rise in violence, and, a, and man is going to become more and more brutal. And this is exemplified, just to make a connection for you, this is exemplified for us, or going to be exemplified for us, in Daniel. When we get to Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 5, Daniel chapter 7, in our study of Daniel on Wednesday nights, we will see that the major kingdoms in human history, representing the kingdom of man and its various stages in human history, is represented by ferocious beasts. Because man, dominated by the sin nature, always tends to act like an animal. He acts bestial. He becomes a brute. And there is no longer uh, this emphasis on individual responsibility because that has its ultimate foundation ideologically in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, that man, every man, every human being is created equally in the image and likeness of God and therefore has value and significance. But apart from doctrine, apart from any biblical influence, then every culture is going to break down and people are going to be treated as means to an end and they will, be, they will act in the manner after a brute. Now, this is what is warned by Jotham, starting with his little parable in Judges 9-7. Just a quick review. What we have seen is that after Gideon died, his 71st son, he had 70 sons up in Ophrah, but he had one son by a concubine down in Shechem. And through this Canaanite concubine, he has a son he calls Abimelech. Gideon had been offered the kingship, and he rejected it back in chapter 8. And he seemed to have a, a, a proper orientation of doctrine at that point, where he said, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. But apparently he had second thoughts, and by the time... Uh, Abimelech was born. He named him Abimelech, which means my father is king. So there's a 
little hint there. He's acting like a king by taking a, a harem, a large number of wives. By the way Gideon conducted himself was as an oriental despot. And he has a son, and he names him Abimelech, which was a title of Canaanite royalty, and it also means my father is king. But Abimelech grows up apart from his brothers up in Ophrah, and he's down in Shechem. And he apparently thinks things through and decides that he can make a real power play. And so he enters into a conspiracy with his mother's relatives in Shechem. He plays the family card. He says, it's better to be ruled by the devil you know than the devil you don't know. So it's better for me to rule over you because at least I'm related to you through my mother. Notice he's also playing the gender card. He's using his uh, mother as a means to an end. We're going to plug that into the deterioration of the role of women throughout this book. Probably in another two or three chapters, I'm going to come back and do a whole, um, at least one message on the role of women in Judges and how paganism destroys uh, man's view of women and how the more pagan a society becomes, the more women are mistreated and abused. And we see this in this passage because Judges 9 begins with Abimelech using his mother and to gain his ends. He doesn't care about her as an individual. He just uses her so that he can uh, have, a, have, a, have leverage with the Shechemites. And at the end, he's killed by a woman, but he, he calls for his, one of his men to, to kill him so that he will not be dishonored by having been killed by a woman. So you see this deteriorating influence there that his whole life is framed by two women, his mother and the woman who kills him. Well, he enters into this conspiracy with the men of Shechem. To get, if they will give him money, then he will hire a bunch of assassins, and they'll go up and they will kill Gideon's 70 sons. That would destroy any potential of a dynasty from Gideon's family and any competition from them as far as Abimelech is concerned so that he can be ensconced as the king of Israel. So he does that, but one of the sons escapes, and that's Jotham. Jotham comes down, stands at the, at, at the top of Mount Gerizim, which has a natural amphitheater, has wonderful acoustics, so that he can stand up there and he can uh, shout this message to the town, and everyone in the town can hear him clearly. And it's an interesting little parable beginning in verse 8. We'll review it. He says, The trees once went forth to anoint a king over them. They said to the olive tree, Reign over us. And the olive tree said to them, Should I cease giving my oil? So here's the deal. The trees represent people. The tree, you have, you have personification here of trees, of vegetation, and all of this... Uh, all of this personification indicates that this is a fable, probably a well-known fable at the time, but he uses it for his own ends. So the, the trees go to the olive tree. The olive tree is productive. It was one of the um, major crops in, this, in the Mediterranean area in the ancient world, produced olive oil, uh, produced, which was necessary for many things in life. So it was one of the most important crops. And they go to the olive tree, reign over us, but the olive tree says... Well, if I was reigning over you, then I wouldn't be able to fulfill my natural function. So what we see here is the olive tree represents the honorable person who's productive in society and would rather carry out his own, operate in his niche and benefit society than get involved in politics. So they go to uh, the second notch down. They go to the fig tree in verse 10. 
and get the same result. The fig tree does not want to give up its natural production and benefit to society, so they, um, uh, it doesn't want, again, does not want to get involved in politics, lower himself. So it's a very negative view of politics in this fable. And then it goes down to the vine in verse 12, and the same result. The vine says, I'm not going to give up what I do and the benefit I have to society and get involved in something as low as politics. So they go to the bramble. They go to the bramble, the briar patch. Now, I don't know about you, but I spent yesterday cutting a lot of briars off the hill behind my house. Now, I don't know what they call them up here, but down south, when uh, we'd go out hiking in the woods, we would always get caught on these things that are trailing across the... Uh, the trail and they grab on your shirt and your jean and you, and you have to stop. We call them wait-a-minute vines. And so what we see here is the bramble represents Abimelech. He's just the, the lowest level on the socioeconomic scale. And they go to the bramble and offer the kingship to the bramble, and the bramble accepts it. So we're going to call Abimelech the wait-a-minute king. And the reason Abimelech is the wait-a-minute king is because the people are so out of the plan of God at this point that God is going to exercise some divine discipline through Abimelech, and he's telling Israel to wait a minute, that they have to, they, they're going to go through such chaos as a result of this that God is going, to, as part of God's discipline on them, that it's go, God's going to use this to get their attention once again to bring them back to him. So... Abimelech is the briar king, the wait-a-minute king, and he is absolutely worthless. A bramble is good for nothing. There's not enough wood there to, to uh, function as fuel. It doesn't produce any fruit. It doesn't produce anything that is beneficial to mankind. And so the briar is the one that steps up and takes the kingship. Now, Jotham drives a point home, and this is a crucial point. This is where we stopped last time. Crucial point in verse 16. In verse 16, he says, Now, therefore, if, and if this were Greek, this would be a second-class condition, if, and it's not. Now, Hebrew isn't that specific, but he's just, that's really what he is saying. If you had done this, but we know you didn't. If you have acted in truth, and New King James Version says sincerity, it is not. It, but this is a crucial concept to understand because this even though God is not speaking, if you notice, we haven't seen God's name mentioned yet. He's not a prophet. Jotham isn't a prophet or a son of a prophet. And he is simply giving this parable. But God is working behind the scenes. This is a major theme in Judges, is that even though the people are in complete rebellion against God, even though everything is deteriorating into random chaos, if you were living in Israel at this time, you would be saying, what in the world is going on? Where has God gone? Why has God deserted us? Why is everything falling apart? It's, a, it's an era we know with this kind of political instability, what always goes along with political instability? Economic instability, trade breakdowns. There's mili been military incursions time and time again. So we know that, that socially speaking, that it was a time of tremendous uncertainty and instability during this entire period. But nevertheless, we're going to discover that God has not deserted Israel, that God is continuing to work, but behind the scenes. God is only mentioned twice in this entire chapter, but we're going to see that he's going to, he is going to uh, work behind the scenes. He is going to bring to pass the 
uh, suggested prophecy in the, uh, at the end of the parable, uh, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. And we're going to see how fire comes out of Abimelech to judge the Shechemites, and then in turn it will be self-destructive as far as Abimelech is concerned. But the issue that, that um, Jotham points out is the twin concept of truth and sincerity. Truth is the Hebrew word emet. E-M-E-T. And it refers to the concept of truth. And when related to God, it relates to His veracity. God is absolute truth. Truth is a concept that is related to two other attributes of God, His perfect righteousness and His absolute justice. His righteousness is the standard of His character. Righteousness is, represents the absolutes of God's character, His norms and standards. Justice represents the application of that standard to His creatures. So we say that what the righteousness of God demands... The justice of God supplies. So that if righteousness condemns man, because man doesn't meet the standard, then justice must judge man. If righteousness blesses man or approves of man, then justice blesses man. But it is related to truth, which is the expression of, of righteousness and justice to man. In Psalm 68:14, we read that righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, but truth and love, chesed, God's faithful love, truth and love go forth from it. So there we see that this connection between four elements, the righteousness and justice of God on the one hand as the foundation of His of his standard and his application towards man, and then as it is expressed towards man, it is, we see two other concepts picked up, truth and loving kindness. Chesed, God's faithful, loyal love. And those are the elements most closely associated with the integrity of God. You, more and more as I get into the Scriptures, I see at least two or three of these four elements related in many different passages. And it's always important that if we're going to do in the practice of doing theology, that you have biblical texts demonstrating relationships between things of this sort. You can't just go in and say, well, logically it seems like this attribute and that attribute relate to one another. I don't care what our logic thinks. We have to start with what Scripture states and build out from there. That's a biblical methodology. So we start off with integrity of God as involving truth, love, righteousness, and justice. Those are the four elements. Now, we've studied that a lot, so I don't want to get bogged down there. But that's what underlies this entire passage is the faithful function of God's integrity towards Israel despite despite their disobedience and their rebellion. 
So the emphasis that, that Jotham makes in his application is repeated again in verse 19. Verse, eight, verse 16, he says, If you've acted in truth and sincerity, and that's, should, that word sincerity we saw last time is the Hebrew word. Truth is emet. The Hebrew word is tamim. T-A-M-M-I-M. Tamim. And it really means integrity. It means complete. It means whole. And it means integrity. And the New American Standard translates that correctly by translating it integrity. If you have acted in truth and integrity by making Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jeroboam, which of course they had not, they had uh, uh, rejected him and dishonored him as soon as he was in the grave. He wasn't cold yet when they were already uh, rejecting him and, and forgetting what he had done and worshiping the uh, Baalim. So he says, if you had done this, and then goes on and explains in verse 17, For my father fought for you, and explains all the things Gideon had done for him. And then he says, But you did not deal with him in integrity. You have risen up against my father's house this day and killed his 70 sons on one stone. And I explained that that meant that there was a ceremonial sacrifice. They didn't just assault them or stone them, but they lined the sons up. They captured them first. Then they lined them up. Then they took a sacrificial dagger and they put them on an altar and they killed each and every one of them. That is just another example of paganism. It's interesting, the irony. You always have to get into the text of Hebrew and note all the little nuances that the author wants you to point out. Just as he starts off using his mother and a woman kills him, so he starts off killing his 70 competitors on one stone and he dies when a stone is dropped on him. So the, there's a tremendous amount of humor in this in the, in, in the original Hebrew that is usually missed when you just read it in the English. So he says, But you've, you rose up against my father's house. You killed the seventy sons on one stone. You made Abimelech, the son of his female servant king, over the men of Shechem, because he is your brother. If then, verse 19, you have acted in truth and integrity with Jeroboam, that was the Canaanite name for Gideon, with Jeroboam, with his house in this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But, of course, they didn't deal with him in integrity, so they go on to say, but if not, let fire come down from Abimelech and devour the men of Shechem. That's the fire coming out from the Bramble king, the Briar king. And devour the men of Shechem and Beth Milo, and let fire come from the men of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. It's going to be a double-edged judgment. And Jotham ran away and fled, rightly so. He did not have the courage of his convictions, and he just announced this judgment. He wasn't even wasn't under the Holy Spirit. We don't know if he was a believer or not. God's not involved because God, it doesn't mention God's involvement. But God is going to uh, honor this anyway and utilize this and demonstrate his integrity, and though the people did not deal with Gideon in integrity, God's going to get, deal with them in integrity. And he, in fact, God is going to give them exactly what they deserve in this case. He's not going to deal with them in grace. He is going to judge them and discipline them in this context. 
So that, that is the announcement of how, what is going to happen and the coming destruction of Abimelech and the Shechemites. Both are going to be judged. And we see the beginning of this downfall in verse 22. This is another fascinating passage because it shows how God is operating behind the scenes. Now, this may challenge your theology just a little bit. I always, there's something impish in me. I always love to get into a passage like this. There's two like this in the Old Testament, and it always shakes people up a little bit. Let's look at the text. After Abimelech had reigned over Israel three years. So this is different. Normally, the pattern that we've seen is that at the end of the reign, the uh, length of the reign is announced. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, his reign is put first this time to indicate that it is short. He had reigned over Israel three years. God sent a spirit of ill will. Now, that's what the New King James says. New American Standard says an evil spirit. The Hebrew is ra, which means evil. God sent a spirit of ill will, literally an evil spirit, between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. Now, it is legitimate to translate it as they have, spirit of ill will. But this same same construction is used in another passage that I want you to turn to. Keep your place here. And turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 22. 1 Kings chapter 22. This is taking place at the end of the reign of Ahab. End of the reign of Ahab. Takes me a little longer. I have this new Bible and the pages are all sticking together. 1 Kings chapter 22. This takes place at the end of the reign of Ahab, and it's a fascinating look into what takes place in the throne of God and how God sovereignly brings about judgment in the human sphere utilizing the fallen angels. Remember, God is sovereign. Even Satan and the demons are under God's sovereign control, and they can't do anything without his permission. And at times, it is more than just a passive permission. God act, actively utilizes them to carry out his will of, of divine discipline. Let's pick up the context. Verse 1, Now three years passed without war between Syria and Israel. Sounds like modern headlines, doesn't it? Then it came about, came to pass in the third year that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat is the king in the southern kingdom, went down, it always uses the word down. Down doesn't mean he went south. It means he went from Jerusalem, which has a high elevation, to any place else in the country. You always go up to Jerusalem, and if you're in Jerusalem, you go down to every place else in the country. And the Jews spoke of up and down, not in terms of north and south as we do, but in terms of elevation. The king of Judah went down to visit the king of Israel. Now he's in trouble because Ahab, remember, was the one who introduced Baal worship into the northern kingdom. He married Jezebel. Jezebel was the daughter of Baal, who was the, high, the uh, um, high priest up in Tyre of uh, the Baal cult. And so with Ahab, you see the full-blown alignment of the northern kingdom with the uh, phallic cult the Phalic cult of the um, 
northern kingdom. The king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know, this is Ahab in the north, do you know that Ramoth in Gilead is ours? This is a city in the Transjordan on the, on the uh, eastern side of the Jordan. Ramoth in Gilead is ours, but we hesitate to take it out of the hand of the king of Syria. The king of Syria had attacked and taken control of this area uh, earlier. So he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to fight at Ramoth Gilead? Let's go to battle. Well, if, you, if we team up together, we can uh, bring this territory back under our control. Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are. I'll align myself with you. Of course, he's out of line doing this, but he is uh, not uh, following Scripture at all. He says, My people is your people. My horses is your horses. Also, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Please inquire for the word of the Lord today. So Jehoshaphat wants to do this, but he doesn't really have the courage of his conviction, so he wants to have to make sure that God's going to give him his stamp of approval. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Now notice, these are prophets in the north. None of them are true prophets. They're all false prophets. And he asked the question, Shall I go up? against Ramoth-Gilead to fight or not. So they all said in unison, Go up, for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. The false teachers are always aligned together, and they always give us what we want, what's going to help us to live in our comfort zone. They uh, always give us something that sounds good and makes us feel better. So the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I want you to notice the response. Uh, verse 7, I skipped that. Verse 7, Jehoshaphat said, Wait a minute, now he's... He sees right through this. They're, they're all aligned together. They say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I know what's going on here. These guys have not talked to the Lord. They wouldn't know the voice of God if, if it came to, came to him and, and if they were taken to the throne of God. So he said, is there not still a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? Well, that probably didn't make Ahab too happy. So the king of Israel said to Joshua, yeah, there's one man, Micaiah, the son of Imla by whom we may inquire of the Lord Yahweh. But I hate him because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. We don't want to listen to him. He's always going to tell us the wrong thing. He never lets me do what I want to do, but he is a prophet of God. So they sent for uh, Micaiah, and Micaiah came. And let's skip down to um, uh, verse 13. Verse 13, the messenger who had gone to call Micaiah spoke to him, saying, Now listen, the words of the prophets with one accord encourage the king. They tell him to go ahead and do what he wants to do. Please, let your word be like the word of one of them and speak encouragement. So he's trying to, okay, look, we're going to go into the throne room, Micaiah. Just for once, give the king what he wants. Don't don't, uh, buck the tide here. And uh, Micaiah says, As the Lord lives, whatever the Lord says to me, that I will speak. So he came to the king in verse 15. And notice his sarcasm at the end of verse 15. He answered the king and said, Go and prosper. The Lord's going to deliver it into your hand. But Ahab catches the sarcasm and says, How many times shall I make you swear that you tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Now listen to this, this prophecy. This is incredible. Then he said, that's Micaiah said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains. Now, Israel there refers to the northern kingdom, not the combined kingdom, just the northern kingdom. I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Now, their master was Ahab. So this is threatening to Ahab. These have no master. Let each return to his house in peace. 
And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Didn't I tell you he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? And Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven, that's all the angels, fallen angels and elect angels. I saw the all the host. Host is a technical term for army. I saw all the army of heaven standing by on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall at Ramoth-Gilead? So one spoke in this manner and another spoke in that manner. Then a spirit came forward. This is a demon. A demon comes forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. The Lord said to him, In what way? So he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord said, You shall persuade him and also prevail. Go out and do so. Therefore, look, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets of yours, and the Lord has declared disaster against you. Now, I want you to notice, these are active verbs here. This isn't some sort of passive permission from God. This is showing God's active use of demons to bring about his purpose. Now, this does not impugn God's character. doesn't mean that God is unrighteous. It means that God is sovereign. Even when God allows Satan to do something, God is still in control. Now, we talk about, well, that's God's permissive will. That means that God is not the one generating the evil. God is not the one choosing the evil. He knows that Satan continuously is a lying spirit and wants to deceive people. Jesus said to the Pharisees, You are your father the devil, who is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. So God knows that. And this is a picture of God using them to do what they want to do, what, what Satan and the demons want to do in the angelic conflict, seeking to destroy the people of God. So it is not indicating that God is the morally responsible person. It is showing that even in the midst of chaos, even when there is a, a, a complete eruption of the angelic conflict into human history, God is still in control. Satan and the demons cannot do what they want to do without God's authority and without God's permission. Now, let's go back to our passage in Judges. This is the exact thing that we see in Judges chapter 9. This is how God utilizes the angelic conflict to bring about discipline on mankind. So, he puts out this, this uh, sends out this deceiving demon in order to uh, create this disharmony between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. Then in verse 26, we see, the, uh, see this person suddenly appear on the scene. His name is Gaal, the son of Ebed. It's interesting, the name Gaal is related to the uh, Hebrew word Goel, which means a kinsman redeemer. It's a key word in Ruth. And it is related to the basic Hebrew word for redemption. And what we see here is Gaal is going to function as a person who is going to try to redeem, uh, not in a soteriological sense, he's going to try to redeem Shechem from the tyranny of Abimelech. All sorts of fun little word plays in the Hebrew here. Gaal the son of Ebed came with his brothers and went over to Shechem. And the men of Shechem put their confidence in him. So much so that, that they throw a major 
banquet. They have a party to end all parties here because they think that this guy is going to free them from the tyranny of, of Abimelech. See, one thing that always goes along with tyranny, because tyranny is the result of a people and a culture that does not understand authority orientation, it doesn't take much to light the fuse on a conspiracy and a rebellion. And that's exactly what Gaal does. They go out and, and notice the, the verbs that are used here to express the Shechemite's response to Gaal. There are seven active verbs here to demonstrate the excitement that uh, all of these partiers are experiencing. They went out to the fields. They gathered the grapes. They prod them. They made praise. They crashed the, into the temple of their god to get some uh, uh, the, the vessels from the temple. They ate. And they drank. So they and they cursed Abimelech. So they had one heck of a party here, and everybody got drunk and told uh, told all kinds of off-color jokes that ridiculed Abimelech and ran him down. And then Gaal the son of Ebed stood up and gave a rousing speech. He's one of the first motivational speakers, and he's going to get everybody fired up to to go to battle against Abimelech. Apparently, Abimelech's out of town up at Oprah at this point. And while he's gone, this conspiracy begins. In verse 28, Gaal says, Who is Abimelech and who is Shechem, that we should serve them? Is he not the son of Jeroboam? And isn't Zebel his offer? Now, he's going to play another race card. Because he's going to, he's basically saying, look, Abimelech is only half a half Shechemite. His mother was a Shechemite, but his father's Gideon. But I'm related to all of you. I'm pure Shechemite. So uh, let's uh, get rid of Abimelech, and I have a better claim to the throne. So let's put him. Uh, let's put um, Zebul, his the guy he's left in charge under my authority, and let's get rid of Abimelech. So he instigates this rebellion. Then in verse 30. We read the response of Abimelech's team. When Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gaal, the son of Ebed, his anger was aroused, and he sent messengers to Abimelech, secretly saying, Take note, Gaal, the son of Ebed, and his brothers have come to Shechem, and here they are fortifying the city against you. So he warns his boss that there is this conspiracy afoot and a rebellion taking place, and that he needs to get back to Shechem with the troops to put down the insurrection. Now, therefore, get up by night, you and the people who are with you, and lie in wait in the field. So here's the strategy. Go lie in the fields, hide, crouch down in the fields so nobody can see you. And then in the, in the morning, when the sun comes up, it will be at your back. So when they come out of the city to work the fields, they're not going to see you. They're going to be blinded by the bright sun, and then you can ambush them. And um, this is exactly what they did, starting in verse 34. So Abimelech and all the people who were with him rose by night, lay in wait against Shechem in four companies. So he's divided himself, divided his group into four companies out there. And Gaal, the son of Evid, comes out the next morning, and he's with the people, and he looks out for looking for Abimelech. And he sees people. He sees some movement through the haze and through the brightness of the sun. He turns to Zebel. And he says, people are, look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. But Zebel said to him, you're just seeing shadows as if they were a man. They can't see clear. It's too bright, too much haze. So Gaal spoke to him and says, no, no, people are coming down from the center of the land. And another company is coming down from the diviner's 
terebinth over there. Now, we don't know exactly what this is, but apparently it was also called the soothsayer's tree or diviner's oak. And this apparently was a tree where the false prophets or some sort of mystic would sit and give divination and uh, foretell the future. So he says, look, there's somebody over at this, over by the, by the diviner's tree coming down. And Zebel said, well, now he knows that he can't, the, 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 uh, the surprise has been uh, uh, neutralized. So he says, well, you did a lot of bragging last night. How are you going to uh, take care of this situation? So in verse 39, Gaal leads his men out, and they have a battle with Abimelech. And Abimelech completely routs them and just kills all of them. That's the excessive violence of tyranny. But he doesn't destroy everyone in Shechem. Look down to verse 42. And it came about the next day that the people went out in the field and they told Abimelech. So he took his people, divided them into three companies. See, there's still a group back in town that are hostile to Abimelech. So he takes his army, divides them into three companies, lay in wait in the field again. And he looked, and the people were coming out of the city, and he rose against them and attacked them. Then Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward, stood at the entrance of the, of the gate of the city, and the other two companies rushed upon all who were in the field. So one company runs to the gate to cut off their retreat, and the other two companies do a head-on assault and wipe out those who are in the field. So Abimelech fought against the city all that day. This was not just a uh, short campaign, but it took all day before he slaughtered all of the Shechemites. And it says he took the city, killed the people who were in it, and he demolished the city and sowed it with salt. So that means there's not going to be any productivity. The, the fields are ruined from that point on. He executes vengeance on the people. There's no justice here, just a vendetta. Now we're going to get a picture, starting in verse 46. The previous verses summarized what happened. 46 is going to give us the detail of the final destruction of the Shechemites. Now, when all the men of the tower of Shechem had heard that, they entered the stronghold of the temple of the god Berith. So they have a temple to Baal Berith, and they go into that temple to use it as a fortress. And when Abimelech found that out, he gathered his men together, and they went up to Mount Zalman just outside, where there was a, still covered with a forest, and they took their axes with them, and they cut down limbs off the trees. They picked up all the firewood they could, and they came back, and they built this bonfire all around the temple. And then they lit it on fire and basically roasted uh, about a thousand men and women who had taken refuge in that temple. They just roasted them to death. And so this shows the excessive cruelty, the brutality, and the bestiality of the kingdom of man represented by Abimelech. Uh, this is what the excessiveness of tyranny. But it doesn't stop there. Now he's going to try to further his control. Thebes was apparently a suburb or satellite city of, of uh, Shechem. And in verse 50, we're told about Abimelech's final demise. He goes to Thebes and he encamps against it. He sets up a fortification and a siege of Thebes, and he finally takes it. But there was a strong tower in the city, 
verse 51, and all the men and women, all the people of the city, the, the Holy Spirit wants us to make sure we understand that it's not just a few, but it's all the residents of the city fled to the tower, shut themselves in, and they went up to the top of the tower. Now, we're not told how many there were, but it was a large crowd. And Abimelech decided he's going to do to that tower the same thing he did to the tower in Shechem. And he's going to roast these people alive. So he comes to the tower. He sets up a siege against it, but he gets too close. And a woman up on top, we're not even told her name, a certain woman, verse 53, dropped an upper millstone on Abimelech's head. Now, I'm not sure how heavy an upper millstone is, but I'm sure it weighs probably 50 to 100 pounds. Uh, I saw one up at Sturbridge Village not long ago, and this thing is enormous. So she probably had some help, but she's the one who had the idea, picked up this stone, rolled it to the top, and just pushed it off, and it landed on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. But it doesn't kill him. But he knows it's a fatal wound, and he doesn't want to have the horrible dishonor of having been killed by a woman, so he calls his armor-bearer to come and tells him to draw his sword and kill him, lest someone say that he was killed by a woman. So we see again this negative view of women that has deteriorated now through, the, through this pagan period in Israel. And women are no longer, what we're going to see more and more, women are no longer viewed as, as valuable, but they're viewed as objects or means to an end. So the young man kills him, he dies, and that's the end of Abimelech, and the bramble has, fire went out from the bramble, destroyed Shechem, and it returned back and destroyed Abimelech. And then we have the final editorial note of the author of Judges, Thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father by killing his 70 sons. This is the second mention of God in the passage. First time told us about God using the evil spirit. And here, in conclusion, we see that even though God has been forgotten by Israel, God has not forgotten Israel, and God is working behind the scenes. Now, the point of this, I want to make four points in conclusion. Point number one, this emphasizes the sovereignty of God over the affairs of man. God is in firm control of all the situation in Israel, even though they don't like it and they don't want to acknowledge it. God's only referred to twice in this passage, but all the events move towards God's intended outcome. This shows how the sovereignty of God works with the volition of man. God is not forcing anybody to these decisions, but God is working behind the scenes to bring about his intended conclusion, but without destroying human responsibility or freedom. The application from this is that no matter how chaotic... No matter how out of control things may appear in your personal life, no matter how out of control things might get in your marriage or in your family or in your job or in the corporation you work for, no matter how out of control things may appear in the nation, how how much an economy might deteriorate, we can have confidence that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, God never deserts us. It may appear out of control to us, but all of history is under the control of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ controls history, and so we can have confidence that no matter how horrible things might appear, God is still in control, and God is still going to bring about the ultimate end and conclusions in human history that he has decreed. second point we see here is that God deals with mankind on the basis of his integrity. 
God had extended grace to Israel time and time and time again, yet they rejected it. So for the first time in this long process of deterioration, we've seen the cycles and the judgeships from Othniel to Ehud. We saw Shamgar and how God used a Gentile to deliver Israel. We saw the judgeship of Deborah and then Gideon. And in all of this, God has in His grace provided deliverance for Israel from their foreign oppressors. But now God is going to deal with Israel on the basis of what they deserve. This is what happens in the believer's life. It's a picture of sanctification. God's going to extend to us grace, 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 and more grace. But at some point, if we continue to disobey God, He is really going to lower the boom in terms of divine discipline. And at that point, we have reached almost a point of no return in our reversionism where God is going to start dealing with us on the basis of what we deserve, and then our life is really going to get miserable. And this is what happens in this, in this episode. If you take the whole panorama of the book of Judges, there's this continuous decline, and there's, um, uh, uh, some of the judgeships are short, some of them are longer, but up to this point, nothing has been as long. The writer has not spent nearly as much time on Gideon or Deborah as he has on, on Abimelech and the tyranny of Abimelech. Why? God wants us to pay attention to the fact that this is a turning point in Israel's history, and it, it, they, they have hit rock bottom at this point, and now it's going to just deteriorate to an even more chaotic position. The point is that God is now going to deal with them on the basis of their integrity and give them what they deserve, not what His grace has provided. The third principle we see here is the principle of divine discipline of reaping what we sow. Gideon became arrogant, led the people into idolatry, and then his son, his son Abimelech intensified that and brought even greater calamity on the nation. It is the working out of the principle of reaping what we sow. And then the fourth point of application is the issue of, of gender. Gender politics, I think, is the phrase they use today. Uh, I don't like the word gender, but that's the word that, that's how they've changed the meaning of the word over the last three decades. And what we see here is that paganism affects the way men and women relate to each other. It affects the way men view themselves and their role in society, their role in marriage, and their role in relationship to women. And it changes the way women view themselves, the way women view their relationship to men and their relationship to society. And paganism transforms all that. And even though, uh, in some ways, uh, women seem to gain a measure of freedom, it is at the cost and the rise of abuse the, the rise of sexual abuse, the rise of physical abuse towards women has increased dramatically over the last 30 or 40 years. And it, at the same time that we have seen the, the impact of the whole uh, feminist movement and the feminist agenda. And those are related. I am not saying that there wasn't physical abuse or sexual abuse before that. I'm saying that simply because there was paganism before that. What I'm simply saying is as paganism increases, so do these other things. And they always go together. There's always been a level of non-Christian pagan sin nature control in our nation. So there's always been a level of physical abuse and sexual abuse. But once the stops from a Judeo-Christian heritage are removed... 
then it intensifies geometrically. And so what has happened today, and I, once I get the whole thing is, uh, put together, we're going to see just how the, the trends of the judges have been exemplified in American history. Now, the lesson from all of this is still God's grace. God disciplines in grace, and God delivers in grace, and the purpose for discipline is to get our attention back on Him. Everything that God does for us is on the basis of grace, and we need to remember that no matter how out of control things might appear in our lives, God is still in control. Jesus Christ controls history, and everything that we have as believers is based on who and what Jesus Christ is and what He did on the cross. That is the foundation of grace. And if we are members of the royal family through faith alone in Christ alone, then God is always going to deal with us either in blessing or in discipline, but there is always a reason for it. But no matter how chaotic things may be, if you're still alive, God still has a plan for your life. And if you're still alive, God is still going to produce that plan and work to bring that about, and that will include divine discipline, and that will include blessing. But God never loses control, even though we may think things are completely out of control. Well, we'll come back next time and get into the next bizarre episode. It seems like things get more and more bizarre from this point on with the judgeship of Jephthah, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to understand these vital principles that you are in control no matter how out of control things might appear. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is without hope, without faith, without eternal life, that right now they would take the opportunity to make their eternal destiny certain. Scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The penalty for sin is spiritual death, but Jesus Christ paid that penalty on the cross, that by faith alone in Christ alone we can have eternal life. You don't have to reform your life. You don't have to make a bargain with God, join a church, or any other human endeavor. Jesus Christ did everything so that all you have to do right now, right where you sit, is accept the free gift of eternal life based on the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Father, for those of us who are believers, we pray that we might be challenged by the things we study, see that ideas have an impact, ideas change things, and that human viewpoint ideas have a destructive impact not only on our families, not only on our marriages, but also on our nation and the culture in which we live. Father, we pray that as believers we might recognize that we are to be salt of the earth, but that only comes about as we advance to spiritual maturity that we might have an impact on those around us based on the doctrine in our soul. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.